Swamiji, would you describe yourself as having a mission in life? And if so, what is that mission? I do have a mission in life. I met my guru and he said that to find God, I must help his mission. He told me I have to lecture, I told me I have to write, uh, edit. Um, he, he also, he didn't tell me to start communities, but I think that's a part of my mission too. He, the only reason he didn't say that, I believe, was because he knew that then I'd be thinking in terms of working separately from the organization. It wasn't time yet. But he, he told me to lecture, I remember especially, because I said to him, sir, I don't want to have to lecture. He answered quite callously, I have to say. <laughs> he said, you better learn to like it. It's what you have to do. But I realized that it was the right thing for me. Finally, my mission is to find God. And so the outer work that I'm doing is what I need to do to find God. And that, in my case, is that I've been full of doubts for many lifetimes. He told me you were eaten up with doubts. And I've, I don't suppose there's a doubt that anybody could have that I haven't shared. And so I, ha I don't have doubts in this life. I haven't really had doubts. But I think I can anticipate other people's questions and doubts and can help them. And it helps me to... Um, fix that faith in myself to help them to overcome their doubts. Therefore, it's a part of my mission, which it may not be that of somebody else, to teach other people. But it's also that my guru came with a special mission, and he needed people to help him. I was divinely appointed, and he told me that. He said, you have a great work to do. And he said that uh, you mustn't disappoint me in that work. I think that he, I know that he wanted me to help spread his mission. My mission, you can say, is to help him to be known, to help the world to know his teachings, to help the world to know what an important person he is in this world, that I think that his life will have a changing impact on civilization, as Jesus did, as Buddha did, as Krishna did, and so on. What will that change be? What do you see? We are living now in an age of energy. In 1900 was the time when we entered this age. In other words, we're a part of cosmic, of the whole cosmos. And we're not a separate little mud ball in this cosmos. We're influenced by cosmic influences. And so according to where we are, we go through certain ages, where we are in our galaxy and so on. And some of these... The, the not only India, hundreds of countries have had this tradition that there are different ages, and usually they number them as four. There's the ancient teaching of Greece that there was a golden age and a silver age and a bronze age and an iron age. In Egypt, they had the tradition that there was the age of the gods, the age of heroes, the age of demigods, of heroes and of men, and uh, so on. But all, all countries had this image, and all of them had the same tradition that they had come into the darkest age. And of course, scholars reading this think that it's fanciful, but it's very interesting that so many have the same teaching. In fact, according to the Indian teaching, which is the only one that has preserved this thing, 
they say that we do come down and it's a cyclic thing. Just as you go from winter to autumn to summer, uh, winter to spring to summer to autumn to winter like that. And so we have come up from that iron age, that dark age, Kali Yuga, Kali means black, into Dwapara Yuga, which means the age of energy. And this has been symbolized as copper. Copper is that which transmits electricity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so copper is that which uh, is the age of energy. In this age, people will be able to uh, travel to distant places, distant, distant planets in the universe. And who knows if we'll demolish the, completely the delusion of space. But according to tradition, at least, they do demolish the delusion of space. If they do, that means that the most distant galaxy is no closer to, no farther away from me than my own hands, because space doesn't exist. Where there is space, there's the possibility of movement, whereas there's movement, there's time. But in this age, we demolish that delusion of space. To what extent? I don't know. But to a large extent, yes. So in this age, which began in 1900, the whole view of the future will be in terms of energy. Now people are less dogmatic. They'll begin to see things, truth, for example. They won't feel that they have to uh, define truth in dogmatic terms. Truth is this. It's a fluid thing. It's more of this and less of that. And so our understanding of the future will be completely different. Therefore, our politics will be different. Our approach to life will be different. Everything will be a matter of relativity toward something more. And in these ways, I think of Yogananda as the avatar or the divine incarnation for this Dwapara Yuga, to initiate into the world this new way of thinking, to make it easier for people to adjust to this new way of thinking. And I think that now we're at that point where the tension between the old ways and the new ways is reaching the point where it will become violent. It will become an eruption. There'll be a, a, a war and clashes and so on. We, we can't, that'll be the metaphysical reason for the suffering that I see in our future. With warfare, I don't think wars are over. And uh, um, depression and so on. There have been several saints, Padre Pio in Italy, others, Master even, spoke of three days of darkness. What will those three days, and how will they be? Well, would it be some planet that hits, some comet that hits the Earth so hard that it stops it from moving for a while, and then the internal movement gradually takes over and the Earth begins spinning? Will three days of darkness on this side of the Earth mean three days of light on the other side of the earth? I don't know. I, I, uh, I can only think about it, but it is intriguing. At any rate, we're coming into an age where there will be peace and harmony. And one of the most important things for this new age is these communities that I myself have started. And you asked me about any mission that I have. Certainly a large part of that mission has been to bring into outward manifestation what the world was not ready for when he was alive. He talked about it. 
He said that I am sowing my thoughts in the ether and thy words shall not die. And he spoke with great power. But uh, I know that his, uh, so the, the president of his organization, I said to her once, when are we going to start these communities? She said, frankly, I'm not interested. Well, that's what he wanted. And I have done that. I think that will be a strong part of the pattern for the future where we cease to think in terms of doing everything, just little communities of people where you can relate to your next door neighbor, where you can help your next door neighbor. You don't have to depend upon a welfare from an impersonal government. Um, many benefits, which I don't want to take the time to talk about now, will come through these communities. And I think that this idea of communities, as Yogananda said, it will spread like wildfire. In this new age of energy, the barriers are breaking down in all sorts of ways. All sorts of ways, yes. And, uh, you know, even when I was young, people living in other countries, they seemed like strangers. Now you see that people are people all over the world. They may have another different colored skin, different shaped eyes, it doesn't matter. Everybody has the same need for happiness, for love, for appreciation, all that. In your communities, do many nationalities live together? We have people from any nationality that comes. We don't go out looking for them, saying, oh, you're from Africa, we need you here. <laughs> but those who come, and they're welcome from all, all over the world. And there's harmony. There's an amazing harmony. You naturally you see little differences sometimes. You do have divorces in our communities, much less than in the world. And people somehow manage to do it more peaceably. There's harmony here. There's brotherhood. There's cooperation. There's helping each other rather than competing with each other. I've often said that if you live, this is something my guru said, if you live in a village of a thousand people and compete with them, you have each person has 999 enemies. If you work with them, each person has 999 friends. In these communities, everybody is a friend to everybody. And they help each other. If somebody's out of a job, the community helps him to find another job, to be s s stable while he doesn't have a job, and so on. If people are sick, people go to the hospital and do what they can to help him, pray for him. When a couple get married, people get together to give them money so they can go on a honeymoon and all those things. It's really a wonderful way of life. It sounds like a, a family, only a larger yes. spiritual family. And we should realize in the end that the whole world is my family. And uh, how can you do that? I've often wondered. I've realized that it's because everybody is seeking the same thing. Just as everybody wants food, everybody wants shelter, everybody wants kindness, yes. And finally, everybody wants happiness. Every, everyone in the world, he may be the worst mafioso, he wants happiness. And finally, if you understand that in the highest octave, everybody is seeking bliss. And so you can see everybody in the world, if you see them in that light, you see that they're all your brothers and sisters. And you can't help loving them. This is the beautiful thing because you see perfect strangers in the streets and you see that underneath their competitive urge to get this from the other person and get that and so on, 
Underneath it all, there's a simple, innocent desire for joy. And you can't help loving people when you see that they want that same bliss. You see, that bliss is at, their, at the heart of their own reality. Often I go through the streets seeing perfect strangers, and to me they're not strangers. And I find myself smiling at them as if they were my own. And the nice thing is that sometimes they answer, too. They feel my love for them, and they, they're uplifted by that. So the more you feel God's presence in everybody, and the more you feel that love at their center, that desire for, for bliss, I think of love as just bliss in motion. And when you feel that desire, then they respond too. I, I know that everywhere I go, I see people, I've known them in other lives, they seem like friends to me. And it's a very happy way to live.